Good morning. Uh, welcome to FCC. If you're new here, uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and uh, it's my privilege to talk about a passage of scripture that um, is probably pretty famous to a lot of people, maybe who've, who've been around the Bible for some time. But with that, I just want to open us up with prayer before we dive in. God, thank you for this, this opportunity to be here in this place. Thank you for the sunshine that uh, allowed us to drive here safely uh, this morning. And, uh, and a reminder of, uh, of the way that you shine light into our lives. Lord, as we, as we look to your word, give us humility. Um, give us discernment. Give us wisdom. And uh, as we seek that, you, you tell us, Lord, that we will find it. If we seek you, we will find you. And so that's what we want to do. We want to experience you today. We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody else having allergies, allergy season for anybody else? I learned that since we moved to California, every season is allergy season for me, so. <laughs> but the rain and all that stuff, it's, it's good times, good times. Um, so we're in this series on Proverbs, and, and I'm excited to conclude this series today. Next week, we start a, a, a Lenten series where we're going to go through blessed rhythms. And so if you've gone through Discipleship Pathway, you know blessed rhythms well. But we're going to take even a deeper dive into what it means to be a blessing to the world around us as we prepare our hearts for Easter. As we see that Jesus has blessed the whole world through his life, death, and resurrection. We want to extend that blessing to anyone who will listen. So um, excited about that series. But we're going to close out our, our Proverbs series today. And just a recap of where we've been in week one, uh, Matt pinch hit for me when I was sick and did a great job of talking about Proverbs 1 and 2. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And together as a community, we, we, we come together in awe and reverence. We worship God and we ask him to give us wisdom. Week two, I talked about Jesus being the wisdom of God. Paul explicitly says that he is the wisdom of God. The perfect embodiment of wisdom in the flesh in Jesus. You want to know what it, it is like to be wise and to be good? Look to Jesus, right? And then uh, we three, Steve Craig, talked about our hearts being set on wisdom, that we pursue it with everything in our being. That in the Bible, when it says your heart, it doesn't mean just your feelings. It means your whole self, right? And then last week, Adrian talked about lady wisdom and lady folly, these two paths, Run to the path of Lady Folly and it will lead to all sorts of problems and ultimately it leads to death. But if you run to the path of Lady Wisdom, you'll find blessing in life. And this is so much in the teachings of Jesus, these two paths, right? There's this path, it goes where you don't want to go. It may be easier and it may seem more attractive right now, but it goes where you don't want to go. And then this path, the narrow one, the hard one, it leads to me, it leads to life. And so... Today, um, I want to kind of close our series because this series has been um, more about how to read the Bible, uh, how to read Proverbs than it has been about getting a bunch of lessons from Proverbs. Um, it, actually, uh, Josh Plummer and I are developing a class on how to read the Bible that we're going to hopefully have ready that people can participate in and just go deeper in their reading of Scripture. Um, and, and it's so important that as we do this, as Josh and I are putting this together, like we're going to do classes on the different genres of the Bible. Not every Bible, book of the Bible or chapter of the Bible is the same as all the others. There's different genres of literature, and that's important that we understand that, right? We, we have to dig into the context of the Bible. Who was this book originally written to? What was going on in their life? What was going on in the world and the culture of those people? And then how do we try to understand for ourselves today? 
right? That's the task of reading the scriptures. And that's what a lot of today is going to be about. How do I approach a book like Proverbs? Today's passage is one of those passages that if uh, we just read it with our cultural lenses, it can actually do some damage. This text um, is actually really amazing, but with the wrong point of view, it can be used in a way that's harmful. Our point of view really matters. Let me give you an example of how our point of view really matters. You guys recognize these folks? I'm a big basketball fan. The short king won the dunk contest last night, and that made me happy. But these are three of the greatest basketball players of all time. Now, I grew up in, in uh, Akron, Ohio, not far from Cleveland, and Michael Jordan was our nemesis. Every year in the playoffs, the Cavs would play the Bulls. Michael Jordan hit a shot in Craig Elo's face that's called the shot because it was like soul-crushing for us in Cleveland, but it's one of the most famous shots in basketball history. My dad hated Michael Jordan, and I was raised to hate Michael Jordan. And it wasn't until later in Jordan's career when I was like, why do I hate this man? I'm watching the greatest basketball player anyone has ever seen. Why can't I just enjoy it? And I changed my tune and I'm like, my point of view changed. And all of a sudden, this amazing thing that I was watching went from something bad to something really good. We lived in Chicago for a number of years. Man, did they hate LeBron in Chicago. Because they're so insecure about Michael Jordan being the greatest of all time. Anybody who threatens that is a problem. They hate LeBron. So I was a troll in Chicago. And then I tried to hate Steph Curry. He beat my Cavaliers three out of four times in the finals. As a Cleveland fan, I'm, I'm familiar with heartbreak. I got over it quickly. He's an amazing basketball player, the greatest shooter of all time. And the only one who's close is Sabrina. Did you guys watch that last night? That was so amazing. She, shot, she did as well as the men did in the, uh, the three-point contest, which that's going to come into play later. It's not really about Sabrina, but. Uh, <laughs> real quick, fun fact. Did you know that Steph Curry was also born in Akron, Ohio? Yeah. yeah. So three of the greatest basketball players ever came from Akron, Ohio. LeBron, Steph, and me. All right, let's move on. <laughs> Being able to appreciate something has to do with our point of view. It's true about Proverbs 31, this, this passage. It's a somewhat famous passage, and uh, if it's read with the wrong lenses, it can be problematic. I was reading an article about a writer who, who was writing for a church leadership uh, website, and she wrote about Proverbs 31. And she, she talked about she actually used to hate these verses. Because in her home and her church that were male-dominated, these, they, they, they separate male and female roles very specifically, and, and the guys are in charge and the women are supposed to listen, right? And see, she wrote about the Proverbs 31 woman. She is a box I cannot fit into. She is a trophy wife that I cannot be. Oof. That's tough. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more as we go, but so many people have experienced this text in that way. If we come with our certain cultural expectations of, you know, a male-dominated society, we're going to read Proverbs 31, and it's going to look like an unfair measuring stick for all women to live up to. And as you read the text, you'll see that that no one actually could live up to it. Many women who grew up in churches like Aubrey's experienced the same complicated relationship with this text. It felt like a weapon used against them to put them in a box, that they had to live up to this checklist as if they were just put on earth to please their husbands, never feeling like they were able to measure up. And if that's been your experience, I want to say, sorry. 
But I also want to say, what if something else is going on in this text? What if it's not that at all? What if there's actually something really beautiful about this text that we can reimagine for ourselves today? So for all of you who have never read Proverbs 31 or you didn't grow up in an environment like that, you're probably like, what's going on in this passage? It sounds wild. It's not really that wild, but (laughs) it's very interesting. So join me, Proverbs 31. I'm just going to read this whole section, verses 10 to the very end of the book of Proverbs. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her whole family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and and grasps the spindles with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed with, with fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes a seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Okay, you may have read that, maybe hearing it with fresh ears or hearing it for the first time, and go, how could that possibly be used to try to subjugate women? Right? It doesn't make any sense, but let's dig into it a little bit. I want to talk about the dangers of reading this text literally. And what I mean by literally, there's multiple ways to read scripture literally, but one way that is common for for some people is they read the text without knowing any context of what's going on, and then whatever their interpretation of the text is gets universally applied for all places and all times. And that's what people do when they read this text and they say, this is a text to tell young men, This is the kind of wife you should be looking for. Or, young women, this is the kind of woman you should be. That would be a literal reading of this text. And I want to share a couple dangers of that. One of the things that that happened over the years is that people would read this and say, see, the woman's duties are in the home. But we have to understand this context of, of, of Proverbs 31 is not like our modern life. In our modern life, we live in, you know, these, these houses and we drive off to work far away, sometimes miles. You know, I know people who drive an hour to work every day and then we come home, right? In, in their time, it wasn't like that. They, they lived in villages of about 100 people, which was really like three extended families. 
And everything happened in the villages. It wasn't like the men went off to work and the women stayed at home and did the, the, the chores and took care of the kids. Their life was fully interactive. Yes, she has duties in the home, but you also see she's got duties outside the home. She's a businesswoman, right? She's, she's doing a whole lot more than is pictured by that type of society that says, no, she should be in the home. That's where her work is done. Jay Goldingay in his book about Proverbs writes about this and just says, we cannot imagine this passage through the lens of 21st century readers in a culture that is nothing like the one we're talking about, right? And so it's, it's easy you know, to, to, to think about this passage and imagine a show like Leave It to Beaver. Anybody remember Leave It to Beaver? Leave It to Beaver was like this idealistic family that lived in the suburbs with the white picket fence and June, June Cleaver was the perfect wife and mom and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that was made to be, this is the way it's supposed to be. Every family should be like this. Every woman should do exactly this, right? It's dangerous. It's dangerous because it doesn't actually get at the heart of what God is trying to say in these verses. The other reason it, we can't take it literally, I just want to be honest with you about this. This is a king writing to his son, which means this is one of the only people in, in that time and place that got to choose their spouse. Almost all marriages were arranged at the time. So this is not like this universal thing of this is how you find a wife and this is how you be a good wife. No, this is a king speaking to his son. It's a totally different uh, experience than everyone else at that time and place. The danger of reading Proverbs 31 in this literal way or in this kind of through a cultural lens of, of the patriarchal structures, it's a big word for saying dudes got to be bossy, Women feel like they have to live up to this as a checklist. But, but men don't. Where's the list for what a noble man is supposed to be? And it's kind of always like that, isn't it? I saw this picture recently and it, it made me laugh and also sad. She showed up to her wedding day, her dream day, dressed like that in this beautiful cathedral, and homeboy showed up in a t-shirt. I don't know where that father-in-law is, but if it was me, there'd be some problems. <laughs> I'm not a violent man, but... <laughs> the underdressed groom, for much of history, more, at least morally, ethically, more is expected of men. More character is expected of women than of men. In many patriarchal cultures, it often feels like the roles are set up to pressure women to be perfect... And the men, all they got to do is earn enough to put food on the table, show up, and be in charge. Boo. Sorry. Okay. That's one of the dangers. That's the dangers of reading this literally. But I also want to be, you know, unbiased as much as I can. What are the strengths of reading this literally? What are the strengths of reading this literally? Well, one, it's completely countercultural, right? It actually bucks against that system, Right? The, the very title for this woman, woman of valor, a woman of noble character, the, the Hebrew is eshet chayil, which is fun to say. Say it with me, eshet chayil. Get that, yeah. I mean, she's strong, she's powerful. In verse 16, it says she's a boss, she's running a business. She's instructing the whole household. She's telling people what to do. It says her arms are strong. That's not typically associated with a feminine character, right? No. She's my homegirl, Louisa. 
from Encanto. She's tough. She's a businesswoman. She's buying and selling land, and she's, she's making products and selling them. Later on, it talks about how attraction is overrated, but fearing the Lord is often underrated. You know, in culture, but also in Christian culture, there's this idea that, like, romance and love begins with attraction. And that's how it's all supposed to be. You fall in love because you just can't resist each other and live happily ever after, and we know that doesn't go very well, right? But even in Christianity, we've kind of just absorbed that cultural thing into ourselves. And man, I'm, I was listening to this guy preach, and he couldn't shut up about his smoking hot wife. And I'm like, gross, man, don't talk about your wife like that. Like, I, I know you think you're complimenting her, but all you're doing is making people think about your wife in that way. And, and, and limiting her to just what she is physically, right? That's just taking the culture that is obsessed with beauty and youth, etc., and just saying, but we can slap Jesus on that and it's okay. No, the writer says attraction, beauty, overrated. Fearing the Lord, that's where it's at. That's what we should be striving after. And we can go on and on again through these verses, but it, you know, it seems like this is a person giving advice about how to find a woman who has all these characteristics and it's going to make you happy and on and on. And, you know, that can be really problematic if we read it that way. But it's also not something that we should be using as a measuring stick, as if you're not being all these things, you're failing, right? Because it's impossible. One of the clues that no one can really live up to this is two, two different verses. One says she doesn't turn off her lamp at night. The other one says she gets up to work while it's still night, meaning this. It's not real. Nobody can do that. You gotta sleep sometime, right? There's not enough hours in the day to be a Proverbs 31 woman. It's 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 a lot. And so when this lens is put on us to say, like, this is how it's supposed to be, and this is who you're supposed to marry. But even with all that, the Proverbs 31 woman is not confined to, to be in the home barefoot and pregnant. She's not controlled under the strict authority of her husband. She's running a business, she's making huge decisions on her own. She's tough, she's got faithful instruction on her tongue. How these verses were ever used to control women makes no sense to me. You have to read a few select verses and ignore the rest of it in order to come up with that conclusion. And let me be clear, if you, if you decided to be a stay-at-home mom, this is a noble and amazing calling that you've chosen. My wife made that choice. In, in our life, we made that choice. It's, no, it's, it's, it's nothing that's less than. But these verses have been used to say that that's the only calling you could have as a woman. And reading the text, it just doesn't make any sense. It's not there. It's, it's the danger of reading our own cultural assumptions into the text and then that getting passed on for generations unquestioned. And so here we are today to question it. But this is why it's so important for us to read the Bible carefully and intentionally. We read the text. It, it, this is why it's so hard. Listen, we read the text in the best translations that we can find in our first language, or some of us in here are reading the Bible in your second language, translated from languages that have changed a whole bunch from the time they were written, ancient Greek and Hebrew, written by and for people that lived in times and places that are very unfamiliar to ours. It's one thing to read the words on the page in the, co in the copy of the Bible that I have in my hands, but it's another thing to dig deeper and better understand what does the text actually mean? I loved what Adrian said last week, to know wisdom, we need to read the Bible. And everything worth doing is worth doing well. 
We have to take care in reading the scriptures. We have to read it and try to get to the heart of what God is trying to tell us about himself and about ourselves. That's why when we do DBS, those are the two most important questions. What does this passage tell us about God? What does it tell us about us? What does it mean for me and for us? We have to realize that we bring ourselves to the text. We have to humble ourselves, right? Just by the fact that I'm reading an English translation of the Bible means I'm actually bringing something to the text. I'm not objective. It's in English, a language shaped in certain places with certain perspectives and cultural assumptions. This alone is a clue that I can't be a totally objective person. I'm shaped by my culture and context. The Bible contains eternal and objective truth. I believe it. But I am limited. I am finite. My ability to know fully is difficult because I bring myself to the table. I can only see from my point of view, but I can get closer and I can get closer and I can get closer. First, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who speaks truth to us, right? But also by listening to other voices, different cultures, and different points of view. And I learned what's going on under the surface. Who was this written to, and, and what was going on in their time and place? And we can get a better grounding into the text and do the work of translating it for here and now. What does this mean for us? So, let's do that now. I kind of kicked it a little bit. Don't read it like this. Don't read it like that. How, how should we be reading? And what are some approaches we can take to reading this book that maybe kind of recover it a little more? Well, a good question to ask, a good question to ask ourselves is what kind of literature are we reading? If we start there, it saves us a whole lot of problems. It's helpful to know that this, this passage that we've just read is not instruction like you see when Moses brings the law or when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. What we have here is a poem. And it doesn't quite translate in English that way. It's an acrostic poem, which each of the, each of the verses starting with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if we were to write that in English, verse 10 would, be, would start with an A, verse 11 would start with a B, etc., etc. It's a poem. And Tremper Longman, uh, a Bible nerd that I love, in his commentary on Proverbs, tells us that this is a poem that resembles a heroic poem that celebrates the hero who has won the battle. It's full of military language. This woman is strong. She is a woman of victory. She wins. And it sounds a lot like Lady Wisdom that we've been reading all, all through the text and Adrian talked about last week. She's all over Proverbs. Lady Wisdom path is the one that leads to life, it leads to victory. We'll get to that in a minute. But another curiosity that might help us understand what's going on here. There are many versions of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and we've collected as many as we can to try to figure out how does it all fit together? What's the right order of things? You know, the texts are very similar across these different versions of the Hebrew Bible. But a lot of times the books are in different orders. And when they discovered the Masoretic text, you don't need to remember that, but that's one of the versions of the Bible, the Masoretic text. If you were to flip, in your English Bible right now, if you were to flip from this page, Proverbs 31, the very end of Proverbs, to the next page, it takes you to, anybody got a guess? So is it? Psalms? Song of songs, I believe. Somebody can do it right now. Is it Ecclesiastes? It's Ecclesiastes. My wife knows the Bible better than me. But... In the Masoretic text, the very, if you were to flip the page right here, it goes to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. 
And if you don't, haven't read the book of Ruth, I encourage you to read it. It's a beautiful book. Uh, Christine Engerbretson uh, preached about this here last year, about how Ruth shows us something of what was to come in Jesus. She's a foreshadowing of what's to come in Jesus. She's an archetype. So who is Ruth? Well, a quick run through of the book. Ruth is a Moabite, so not an Israelite. Amazing that one of the heroes of the Bible and uh, people in Jesus' line is not an Israelite, but a Moabite. And when she and her mother-in-law both experience the death of their husbands, they become widows. And the custom would have been for her to go back to her family and potentially start over in Moab. Find a new husband there. Try to make a life for yourself. But she refuses. She stays to take care of her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she tells her, your God is my God. Where I go, or where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. And where you die, I will be buried. Ruth eventually meets and marries Boaz, an Israelite, who takes in Ruth and Naomi as his own. But the book is about how Ruth's faithfulness and courage eventually lead to redemption. She and Naomi are going to be okay. Ruth is this foreshadow of Jesus, a savior who never leaves us, who never forsakes us. His faithfulness leads to our redemption. And Ruth is awesome. She is awesome. Another important thing about Ruth, she's the great-grandmother of King David. David was the most important king in Israel's history, and so much of the Old Testament is dedicated to him and his descendants. What is David? David is this amazing military king, and the only reason he comes into being is because of this amazing, courageous, and faithful woman, Ruth. It seems like a poem about her and how amazing she is might be in order. And so Proverbs 31 may just be a setup to the book of Ruth. One more clue into that. Eshet Kayil. Kayil, excuse me. What is Ruth called by Boaz in Ruth 4.12? The same phrase, a noble wife who can find a woman of valor, Eshet Kayil. I love that. The Bible is awesome. Don't underestimate it. Dig deep. There's so much goodness there. But let's keep going with this. Proverbs 31.10. Who can find an Eshet Chayil? And then you turn the page. The next page, it's all about Ruth. Who can find her? Here she is. She's Ruth. It's pretty cool. If you're a Bible nerd, hopefully you enjoy that too. This is one major possibility about what Proverbs 31 could actually be about. A, a king telling his son, remember Ruth. Remember the blessings that have come to our family because of her faithfulness. Be faithful like she was. That's what it means to be a hero. Be like Ruth. And I definitely think there's something there, but we also need to realize that this portrait is an ideal. Ruth is this real kind of embodiment, this real person in the flesh who exemplifies some of the, the characteristics of, of wisdom in the Proverbs that we've been teaching about. In short, the Proverbs 31 woman is Lady Wisdom. The whole book has been about lady wisdom and lady folly, and here it is in the flesh. This is what it looks like for lady wisdom to live life here and now in this place. Well, how, how can we be sure that the Proverbs 31 woman is lady wisdom? Well, 
A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Go back to Proverbs 3. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. The book itself gives us clues that this is this ideal, this is wisdom herself, wisdom itself. Adrian talked last week about the context of chapters 1 and 9. King Solomon, David's son, he's a king and he's getting his sons prepared to lead with wisdom and with character. And that's what we have here in the very last chapter. King Lemuel, which is not his name, it's, it's, it's title, it means he belongs to God. So it could actually be Solomon. It's probably another king in his family history. We don't know which one. Some scholars have guessed, but we, we can't be sure. But King Lemuel is saying here to his son, seek wisdom. And don't overestimate the humanity of the text. If you want to get the attention of your young hormonal son and you want to keep their attention long enough to actually pass on a lesson, you talk about girls. Son, I want to talk to you about life and leadership. Okay, but are there going to be girls there? Should I do my hair? Should I wear my cologne? Last year, I watched a dugout full of 12 and 13-year-old boys act like fools and little children until one of the player's older sisters and her, her pretty friend showed up. They changed quickly. They were trying to act real mature, and somehow their voices got deeper. I'm surprised one of them didn't step out and do the Tommy boy. Have you seen the weight room? Is it this, this way? Sorry, I had to embarrass one of my children today. King Lemuel is saying, chase after wisdom and she will bring you a good life. She will draw you to the Lord. She will keep you on the right path. So ladies, should you be striving to be the Proverbs 31 woman? Sure. But so should us dudes. We should be striving to be Proverbs 31 men. We should all be seeking to grow in the way this passage talks about the noble woman. We should strive to be like her. Okay, so, so far this sermon has been primarily about how do we read the Bible. It's been a little technical, maybe a little academic and boring. I apologize. But it's to help us that we, uh, we need to read Scripture carefully because there's so much gold in there. But we've got to dig deep. Understand our context. Recognize that we bring ourselves to the text. We have to, we've got to understand the context of the scripture so we know what it meant to that first audience. We need to be humble in our Bible reading, and I think the text is telling us, it's telling us, you know, to come and say, I, I, think, I think this is what the scriptures are telling me. I'm going to walk in faith. Instead of, I have mastered the text. I know what it means. Everybody listen to me. I think we need to come with that humility of, God, continue to teach me. If I'm missing something, show me. I'm going to take steps forward in humility, trusting that your word is going to lead me to life. But I want to close with, uh, you know, a few lessons that Proverbs 31 does teach us. Okay, if we, we try to understand, well, how should we read this? We should read this as chase after wisdom. Be like the Proverbs 31 woman, all of us. It's an impossible measuring stick, but let's strive after it. One of the things that this tells us, that Proverbs 31, is that wisdom is found in simplicity. Right? She takes care of the day-to-day stuff. She takes care of the people that God has entrusted her with. You know, as I was listening to a podcast on Proverbs 31, this was one of their key takeaways. And, and, and one of the hosts of the podcast said, 
People will leave home to set up billion-dollar industries and totally forsake the day-to-day. They'll totally forsake their families. And I had read, <laughs> read recently about a, a politician who um, was on this, this, this you know, crusade. To, we're going to legislate family values in the name of Jesus. And his wife is uh, lecturing, you know, she's off lecturing and, and, and speaking engagements and telling people how to live with Christian family values. And then later, you know, you find out he's got a second family and he refuses to, to support that second family financially. He just abandons them completely. As, as they're off doing their separate speaking engagements, the, the kids who are not really old enough to be watching the other kids are watching them. And one of their children drowns in a swimming pool. It's absolutely tragic. And then that, that child grew up to be someone that you maybe have heard in the news, but she went on to become a teacher who uh, went to jail for having a child of her 13-year-old student. Okay, this is extreme. And you should gasp. Gross, right? What good was it to go off and tell everybody else how to live your life but forsake the, the small things at home? What good was it to shoot for the stars and, and then not focus on the little things? Jesus taught this. If you can't be trusted with the little things, you definitely won't be trusted with the big things. I think it's important that we have to be okay with simplicity in life. Ordinary is okay. In fact, Paul tells us in the Bible, live a quiet life. <laughs> Start with the small things. Instead of trying to make a name for yourself or becoming important and powerful, take care of the small stuff. Love and care for the people God has entrusted with you. Don't try to take shortcuts. Another thing, wisdom is found in work. There are no shortcuts in life. Some of us uh, live our lives trying to find a shortcut to prosperity. And some people get a shortcut, you know, they get a big inheritance or, you know, they got lucky on the stock market, whatever it is. But for most of us, that's not going to happen. It's a very small percentage of people. But imagine somebody who's down on their luck and and they've got this debt of $1,000 that's due today. And they don't know what else to do. And someone in their life says, I'll pay that debt. I'm going to give you $1,000. You're going to pay this off. And you're going to get this weight off your shoulders and you can start building. You can start covering your bills and working your way up, being wise with with whatever opportunities you get. And then this person takes the $1,000 and goes and buys a bunch of lottery tickets and loses it all. Now, that's a parable I just made up, but I'm sure that actually has happened. Get rich quick schemes are just that. They are schemes for me to get rich off the people who fall for my scheme. Nobody else gets rich. There are no shortcuts. We work hard. We save. We say no to the luxuries we want in life, but we can't afford right now. So that maybe we can say yes to them later when we've wisely built a sustainable life. The Proverbs 31 woman is also generous. She takes care of her own, but she takes care of those in need. She reaches out to the poor. And a person of wisdom knows that a life of generosity reflects gratitude. Look at what God has done for me. Look at how he's provided for me and shown mercy to me. A wise person says no to some of the luxuries that we want in life now so that we can say yes to caring for others who are in need. And lastly, I preached a whole sermon on this. I don't need to beat it into the ground, but wisdom is found in Christ. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Proverbs begins and ends with this encouragement, fear the Lord. That's where wisdom comes from. That's where life comes from. 
We talked about Ruth as this archetype, this foreshadowing for Christ. She foreshadows what's to come, and so does her great-grandson David. And I know we've talked about this already, but Jesus is the wisdom of God, and all other wisdom needs to be tested against Jesus. Does it line up with him? No? Well, then it's not wisdom. We read it in the Gospels. What is Jesus like? What does he care about? What does he call us to do? That's wisdom, and it leads to true life. His own brother, James, talks about Jesus-shaped wisdom. And I have Pastor Will to thank because he sent me this verse this week. I didn't originally have this in my sermon, but I love this passage. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. That is a powerful verse. That's what wisdom looks like. And these these verses can call us to consider a few things. When we leave this place today, we're going to be bombarded by information. Every second of every day, information is coming at us. And we have to be discerning. Where do you get your information? Knowledge is one thing. Knowledge is, 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 is just having information, learning facts. But wisdom... Wisdom that comes from God shapes character. It shapes action. It's lived out in a way that mirrors Christ. So ask yourselves, who am I getting information from, knowledge from? Who influences me, my friends? The news channel I I like to watch, the the blogs, the social media. How do they stack up to this list? Are they peace-loving? Are they impartial and sincere? Are they helping me become humble To become a peacemaker? If not, then the knowledge that they are giving you is not from heaven. It's not wisdom. Seek truly wise people who don't just tell you what you want to hear or confirm your biases or get you angry about whatever thing or whoever you're supposed to be mad at. Find people who influence you towards peace and mercy. As you seek wisdom, use that as a measuring stick. It's not about what I know. It's about showing wisdom through a transformed life, a good life, by deeds that are done in humility that come from wisdom. When we seek wisdom, we will find Jesus. The Jesus who walked the path that we are meant to walk and he did it perfectly. The Jesus who loved you so much that he would die so that you can follow that path and have life. The Jesus who is cheering you on saying, don't stop. Take the next step of faith. Continue to chase after me and my wisdom and you will experience the life I always wanted you to have. Now and for eternity. I'm going to invite the band to come back up right now. We're going to sing a song called The Way. We've already sung these lyrics in the song that we sang, Abide. But this one just says this. I believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And this comes directly from Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the wisdom of God. And he deserves our praise now for all that he's done and for all that he is. 
But even more than that, he deserves our whole heart. He deserves our whole life. And when we seek him, we find him. So before I pray, I just want to say, if you've never started on that path of following Jesus, that this is all new to you or, or you're feeling compelled to say, I want to start that path. I want to be on a path that leads to Jesus. I would ask you to come and pray with somebody after service. We're going to have prayer team members up at the front. Uh, they'd love to pray with you about that, about getting started. How do you take steps? How do you put your faith in him and get started? But for all of us, we spent, you know, a little over an hour here today in church together, and then we're going to spend a whole bunch of hours out there with information and pitfalls all around us. Let's pray that God would empower us to know true wisdom when we hear it and see it and to chase after it. It's worth more than gold. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the patience of the congregation who lets me be really nerdy and, and dig a little deeper. And God, it, it, sometimes it takes a lot of work to, to get what's truly at the heart of Scripture. It's not easy. But when you say when we seek you, we will find you. And when we find you, we find freedom. We find truth. We find life. Lord, if there's anybody here who just needs to start that path of faith to follow after you, Lord, speak to them now. If that's you and you're in this room and you're like, yeah, I think I, think I want to start chasing after Jesus. I want to, I want to put my trust in him. I want to put my trust in his life, death, and resurrection and start following him. You don't need to do much. You can speak to him openly, honestly. He hears you. Just call out to him. Lord, I, I know my, I need you. I know I'm lost without you. And I want to spend the rest of my life chasing after you. That's it. A simple prayer like that will do. And Lord, we do this in community. We do this together. It's not about individuals. It's about a family coming together to say, we're chasing after Jesus together. Help us, God. Help us to, to walk hand in hand with one another, to spur each other on in wisdom, because we know how good it is when we experience you and the life that you offer. Lord, we love you. We want to seek you. We want your wisdom. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to walk step by step with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.